Please take your Bibles and let us turn together to the book of Acts and the chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. And we will read the Word of God as we find it in this passage lying before us. I welcome you as well to the meeting tonight, and we trust that God will be with us, bless our hearts, and speak to us as we come before Him and we consider His Word together, both online. We are glad that you're tuning in once more. So Acts 27, I want to be, uh, begin reading at verse 4, and we want to read down to verse 25 of this chapter, Acts 27, and the verse number 24. And the Word of God says, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed from Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Canidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, over against Salmone, and hardly passing it came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens. Nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Thenis and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island which is called Clotta, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay in us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. 
For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am, and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. And we know that God will bless the reading of His own Word to our hearts. Now, can we bow in prayer? And let us just again unite our souls before the Lord for a moment or two and look on to Him for help and for His blessing and power. Our Heavenly Father, we wait on Thee. Thou dost know the need of the preacher and the hearer. And we come before Thee now, earnestly beseeching Thee for that blessed help of the Spirit of the living God. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt tabernacle with us right through this time of the study of the Scriptures, the preaching of the Word of God, the proclamation of the note that this chapter contains. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt be pleased to speak unto hearts in this gathering, and even those beyond these walls who join with us, we pray that Thou wilt move upon them as well, and Thou wilt speak mightily and powerfully even by the Spirit of the living God. And so, Lord, abide with us now, cover us beneath the shadow of Thy wing, grant help from heaven. May a work be done this night. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for His sake, and for His everlasting glory. Amen and amen. Paul traveled extensively in his ministry, and very often it was by sea, where he frequently faced tremendous dangers. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes of hardships that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And there you find him saying, Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in perils of waters, in perils in the sea. In this chapter, Paul is on one of his voyages a voyage to Italy, where he will then go by land to the city of Rome. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he expressed his deep longing to visit God's people in that church, in that city, by whatever means he could actually get there. Little did he foresee that uh, how he would eventually take his journey to meet the Roman Christians. The circumstances are fully described for us in these final chapters of the book of Acts. The narrative reveals that for much of that journey, uh, the Apostle Paul traveled as a prisoner on a ship. And furthermore, the narrative records that uh, with regard to one section of that journey, it dramatically concluded amidst a raging storm that brought about the destruction of the vessel on which he sailed, and that's the chapter from which I've read just a few minutes ago. The ship on which Paul was a prisoner was obviously a sailing ship. Its mariners were at the complete mercy of the winds. It is striking. I don't know whether you noticed this as we read through the part of the chapter that I did read. It's striking to discover that in this chapter, there are eight distinct references to the wind. 
with all of them proving to be dangerous winds. When the ship put to sea, naturally the force and the direction of the wind dictated its entire progress. If the wind blew favorably at all, then all was well. But if a raging tempest arose, as of course was the case, then the existence of the vessel and the very crew was all put in jeopardy. The first section of the journey to Rome had hardly begun when it became evident that the voyage was going to be far from easy and would be fraught with many dangers. All the difficulties were caused by the wind, and sailing became increasingly perilous as that journey unfolded. However, the captain of the ship was determined to sail from a place called Phoenice or Phoenix. It was a harbor on the island of Crete, and he wanted to spend, uh, spend the winter there. And for that segment of travel, a south wind was needed. And although that was extremely unlikely at that time of the year, yet we find in verse number 13 these particular words, when the south wind blew softly. And consequently, the vessel began to sail, but with a disastrous result. Soon the boat was destroyed, all on board were shipwrecked, everything had turned to disaster, all because the, the south wind blew softly. Those are really the pivotal words in this story. From them and their context, some very important lessons may be learned concerning the shipwreck that multitudes of people make in their lives. It is significant that Scripture portrays man as being on a voyage toward eternity. In Psalm 107, for example, verse 23, there's a reference made to those who go down to the sea in ships and do business in great waters. And study of that verse and its context will reveal that the language there is figurative language. It is figurative human experience on the sea of life. Man's little voyage through life, therefore, is a serious affair and should be regarded as such that the harbor of safety might be reached. But unfortunately, multitudes of souls never reach that destination, but soon come to utter ruin and to everlasting despair. Their frail vessel of life comes to grief, and they are plunged into the billows of an unfathomable hell. Tonight I purpose to focus your minds on these words, the south wind blew softly. This is a topical message, obviously. The words have a topical significance in that they point us to the fact that there are reasons why multitudes are spiritually shipwrecked. I keep with the theme of the passage, spiritually shipwrecked, and they are lost forever. You see, sinners are not lost for no reason. Rather, there's a huge variety of reasons as to why sinners make shipwreck of their lives, of their course in this world. Paul uses the metaphor of making shipwreck 
In 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, there he writes of sinners who jettison a good conscience and they make shipwreck of life and soul. Think about that verse, about that language. He actually puts it that way, that they jettison their conscience. That's the thought, that's the sense of the words, and the result is that they make shipwreck of life and soul. They come to grief. They are lost forever. They make shipwreck. What a sorrowful and a tragic end. And from Acts 27, I want us tonight to consider several reasons why sinners suffer spiritual shipwreck. That's how I want to deal with these words and this whole passage and all that we find in terms of how we are able to learn from a physical experience that Paul had and those with him had, learn from all that how we who do not know the Lord, if you're not a saved person, how you are in danger of making shipwreck with regard to your soul, your eternal destiny, what's going to happen to you at the end of the journey of life as you finally uh, go toward eternity. Where will your destination be? What? Where will the boat of life take you? That's the thought that we see in this passage. I want to deal with it. I want to give you three reasons why. Sinners do make a spiritual shipwreck. Number one, they suppose that favorable circumstances guarantee safety. They suppose that favorable circumstances guarantee safety. Now, the Bible here says that when the south wind blew softly, the sailors supposed that they had obtained their purpose, that they had actually come to the point where all was fine and all was well for sailing. They presumed that all would be well because of the circumstance of a favorable wind. The south wind blew softly. And you see, when that happened, everything seemed to be right. Everything seemed to be in place. When the south wind blew softly, they began to go in the right direction, or so they thought, because they are moving from the south. They needed to go north from Fair Havens to Phoenice to winter there, and the wind, therefore, was blowing in the right direction. It was also blowing with the right force. It blew softly, which means it was just like a, a gentle breeze. They had but 40 or 50 miles to travel to get to that destination to which they wanted to go. It came at the right time, as they supposed. It came just at the point when they needed to sail. And so all those little details are there. There are what appeared to be the favorable circumstances because the south wind blew softly. And therefore, to those heathen mariners, because they were heathen mariners or sailors. All of this would have seemed to be a set of good omens from their gods, and therefore they supposed it was safe to take their journey. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. They were heathen. They were pagan. They were always looking for something favorable from their gods, and that's how they read the situation. They believed that all was well, and therefore they supposed that those favorable circumstances guaranteed their safety. 
It is foolish, men and women, to act in any situation just because circumstances only seem to be in your favor. However, it is much more disastrous with regard to spiritual life, with regard to a journey toward eternity. It's much more disastrous to feel that all is well in the spiritual realm because of seemingly favorable circumstances. You see, our souls, our lives are too precious to be guided by mere suppositions that are based on circumstances only. In life, there is great spiritual danger. There is the need of an urgent refuge. And thank God there is a refuge. There's a fair haven of safety to which you are called to enter. However, there are many south winds of deception, and they lead you to imagine that all is well. And then the storm comes, and the tempest blows, and I'm speaking here of of all that comes down upon men in terms of everything going wrong and the circumstances changing very quickly, and all that seemed to be favorable suddenly turning the other way around, and they find themselves adrift, and without Christ, and without God, and without hope. And when that happens, then no power of flesh or of man can save you. Get it straight tonight. There are favorable circumstances that many people look for and cling to, and thereby they are led astray. They move along the journey of life on the sea of life to complete ruin and disaster. In verse 13, the operative word there is actually the word supposing. Do you notice it? And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, They sailed by Crete. Oh, how vital that word supposing is. It's highlighting what I've already been saying, making suppositions based on favorable circumstances. As used here, it indicates dependence on one's own thoughts, one's own feelings and ideas as are dictated by those favorable circumstances. The mariners supposed that everything was in their favor just because the south wind for a little while blew softly, blew very gently, and they then concluded all is well. They supposed that all was well. And likewise with many, as I've been indicating, spiritual suppositions based on favorable circumstances become the only compass and the only chart that many, many souls will look to and depend on as they make their way through life. That word supposing simply means to think. Now, the Bible certainly instructs us to think, to reckon, to reason, to make suppositions, but based not on favorable circumstances merely, or even at all, but based on revealed truth, not mere feelings dictated by our circumstances. You see, this is how many people are living, and you may be one of them. 
circumstances in your life cause you to think, well, all's well, all's fine. The south wind might be blowing in your life, and the south wind was a very, as I said, a very gentle breeze. It was so favorable, and it may well be that in your life at the present time, you think all is well, because there are circumstances that appear to be favorable, and they've even become your spiritual guide. How you look at life, how you deal with eternity, how you face the matter of dying and and leaving this world, or even the issues of sin and wrath and judgment. All of this becomes the way by which people are guided, as they think, with regard to the spiritual realm. What they are really being is pragmatists. You've heard of the word pragmatism. It's the measuring rod that is used by multitudes of people It is the philosophy that whatever works must be right, that whatever succeeds must be good. Whatever makes you feel good has to be something to seek. When all the time scriptural uh, teaching and biblical principles are being trodden underfoot. And that's how the world is living. The world is a pragmatic world. It teaches that, that philosophy. It clings to it. It promotes it. If, if it makes you feel good, if it does something, gives you a buzz, uh, to use that word, well, that's great. That is the way to live. That's the way to succeed. That's the way to enjoy yourself. That's the way to be happy in this world. That's pragmatism. And I I say tonight, that's a dangerous philosophy because it inevitably leads to spiritual shipwreck and disaster. Now, taking that word supposing, in the New Testament, actually in the book of Luke, and I'm going to show you these verses, you find that that word supposing a number of times where people actually made foolish suppositions concerning spiritual things, and it just did not work. It didn't do them any good. In fact, it brought upon them nothing but sorrow or heartache or whatever the case may have been. I draw your attention. If you don't want to turn to them, if you want just to listen on, I will tell you what the verses say. Luke 2, 44. There you read the Word, and it says there, "...they supposing Him," that's the Lord Jesus, "...to have been in the company, went a day's journey." Well, here's a journey. Here are people traveling. It's actually Mary and Joseph and others in their family circle and some friends and they are making a journey. They've been to Jerusalem for the feast, and now they're going back toward Nazareth, and they make a supposition that the Lord is with them, that He's in the company, and therefore they felt all is well. We can journey on. They're enjoying themselves. They're very happy. They're cheerful. They've had a great time there in Jerusalem, and now they're traveling on, and they're supposing that the Lord is with them, but they were wrong, completely wrong. It's the same word as here. We can tie this in because they remind us of many who actually think that the Lord is with them because they are in perhaps the right company. Just take that example. People can mingle with the Lord's church and with God's people, and they got this feeling about this. This is a nice place to be. This is a good situation. 
I feel happy and content here because look at all these people around me. They're, they're good people. They read their Bibles. They pray. And that, they suppose, is going to do them good. Oh, my dear friend, there are many, many people like that. And as you read the passage here about Mary and Joseph who supposed that Jesus Christ was with them but was not with them, then they came to the point where they made the discovery that He was not there. And because He was not there, what did they do? What was the course of action that they had to take? They had to retrace their steps. They had made their supposition. They made it completely in the wrong. They were, they were without the Lord. The Lord was missing. So they had to go back to where they had seen the Lord last. And when they went there uh, to Jerusalem again, went into the temple, they found the Lord sitting in the midst, and there He was talking with the rabbis and the teachers, and actually He was the one who was in charge. And it may well be I'm speaking to somebody tonight, and you made the supposition at some point that you were a Christian, that you were saved. You supposed that this was the case. You supposed that all was well because of circumstances. Maybe godly parents or a Christian upbringing and Sunday school and children's meeting and all that you've come through and you've supposed that all is well. But the question is, is the Lord really with you? Is He? Is He in your heart? Is He the center of your life? Does there exist a union between you and Him? Do you find that you love Him and you can't go through one day without praying to Him and sitting at His feet and reading His Word and having fellowship with Him? Or are you just drifting along supposing that the Lord is there and He's not there? Ah, my dear friend, how can you continue on the journey of life in that manner? How can you face the end of life merely on the basis of supposing that Christ is with you and He's not? In your life, perhaps it may well be the truth that there's absolutely no evidence of a work of grace. There's no demonstration that you are a saved person it's just a formality. It's just a veneer. It's just a kind of a passage through life where you think all's fine and all's well and you suppose the Lord is with you as Mary and Joseph did, but it's not the case. What you've got to do is get back to where you once were perhaps and your heart was stirred and your soul was moved and you were troubled about your sin and yet you never really came to the Lord. My friend, you've got to get back to those basic areas and make sure and find out if Christ is really in your life. That's one verse that throws a lot of light upon people making suppositions. Or Luke 12, verse 51 is another one. And the Lord speaks there and He says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. Suppose ye, there's the word once more, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. At that point, 
The Lord was surrounded by crowds. He was very popular. He was acclaimed with adoring wonder. And the supposition, the supposition was that He was going to bring in an age of peace. And that's how He put it. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. And the Lord contradicts that supposition by saying, I tell you nay, but rather division. You see, men and women, the true gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, all that happens through His work in this world and people's hearts actually causes division and separation between men and women, between all classes and nations and so on. That is a very stark reality that the Lord brings before us here. And we've got to understand that. You see, many suppose that Christianity is a nice, easy path. No self-denial, no reproach, and no division. But my friend, the Lord goes on to say in that context that He came to bring a sword, a spiritual sword. And that sword divides between people. Because if the Lord is truly yours, you're going to find that those to whom He does not belong want nothing to do with you. And to put it the other way, if the Lord is really in your heart, then you will want nothing to do in the sense of some kind of a close affiliation with those who are not His. It works both ways. If you become a Christian, the world will reject you. The world will hate you. If you're living for the Lord, if you're serving Christ, the world will not want you at all because your life will be a condemnation of their lifestyle. It will show them up. It will expose them. It will bring the searchlight to bear upon them and they don't like that and they will soon want rid of you. But then you see, if the work's done in your heart, you will not want anything to do with those who are not the Lord's. You will realize as Paul puts it, there cannot be any concord between the believer and the unbeliever. You cannot walk in fellowship and in close harmony with those who are not born again. And if you suppose that Christianity allows all this, you've made the wrong supposition. And let me tell you, you are heading for disaster. You're heading for disaster. And I direct that especially tonight to our young people. I want you to get a hold of this young person. You cannot sit on the fence. You cannot conclude that all is well with you just because things feel good or because you have supposed that uh, you are favored with God's mercy or something like that if there is no vital, real, saving change in your life. And you must search your heart and ask the question, where am I? To whom do I really belong? What is my uh, genuine identity, spiritually speaking? Uh, how am I traveling through life? How is it with my soul? Ask yourself those questions. Because the Lord came with His gospel to separate the 
people whom he saves from the ungodly, bring them out of humanity, make them his own, and put his mark on them. Is that happening? Has it begun in your life? Is it taking place? Or are you merely living on the basis of a supposition that all is well? Luke 13 is another one. And Mr. Short read from this for us earlier in the meeting. This, now turn with me, please, to that particular reference. It's a very serious one, a very solemn one. Luke 13. And down through these verses, you find the Lord using the word suppose. Verse 2. Uh, there are those who came to the Lord. Verse 1 tells us about an incident in Galilee when Pilate had murdered people who were offering their sacrifices. And the Lord asks the question in verse 2, Suppose ye, it's the very same word as in Acts 27, supposing, supposing that because things were favorable, all was well. And the Lord puts it this way, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things. And then in verse 4, another incident about a group of 18 people, and a tower fell on them, and they all were killed. And he says there in verse 8, uh, concerning those people, think ye, and the word think is the same word, suppose ye think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. And here the supposition has to do with the thinking that when people come under tragedies, fall into such tragic situations, there's something that the others are saying would never happen to me. Never happened to me. And on that basis they supposed that they were right with God because they had never suffered in these ways. How prone men are to judge themselves according to the tragedies and the miseries that are suffered by others. That is a fact. And when people see others suffering tragedy and misery, and you know, they, in many cases, they're actually God's children. Because God's children sometimes suffer tragedies and miseries and heartache and sorrows of the most intense kind. And people looking on say, well, I look at them and I suppose that because that has never happened to me, then all's well with me. That's the supposition that the Lord is bringing out here. Let me ask you a question. What are the calamities of life really for? Why do they happen? They are loud calls to prepare to meet God. They remind each one of us of the root of sin that's in us, of which we need to repent. Otherwise, as the Lord says here twice, we will perish. As He said to these people, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. I tell you, men and women, it is true in life among humanity. There are people who almost take a delight and seeing other people suffer in some calamitous way because it makes them feel secure. It didn't come to me. I escaped. And therefore I'm fine. I'm well. I'm all right. And what's God doing? God's sending warnings that calamities come 
as a harbinger of the final judgment. Tragedies occur in many, many areas of life, and for many, many reasons we're aware of that. But they occur under the sovereign disposal of God to warn mankind that there is a final judgment. There's the great day coming when men and women will meet the Lord, but as they go through or watch or witness calamities and tragedies, because it doesn't impact them at the moment, they suppose that all is well. If you're making that supposition, because at this time in your life, everything is running smoothly, you are in real danger. And even when you hear of others and their calamities and their tragedies, and the only reaction you have is, well, there must have been something terribly bad about those people for suffering that way. And because I haven't suffered that way, then God must love me. God must be favorable to me. Shows you the perverted, twisted mind of fallen man. And therefore, dear friend, do not allow favorable circumstances to cause you to think that all is well, that everything is safe, and you make that supposition, and you make it to the detriment of your soul. Can I just take you back to Acts 27 for a moment or two and show you also that favorable circumstances cause people to despise the real refuge. Favorable circumstances cause people to despise the real refuge. The south wind blew softly. They supposed they would have no problems. They left what's called the fair havens mentioned there in verse number 8. They left the fair havens, which was, of course, what its name suggests. It was a place of safety. But they leave it. And in leaving it, they are despising it. It's the place they ought to stay, and there they ought to shelter. But they leave the fair havens, and they despise it because the south wind begins to blow softly. And that circumstance makes them think that the south wind has come, the fair havens, it's nothing, we'll be fine, we can journey on, we will make it where we want to go. You see, that decision that they made to leave the fair havens was taken against Paul's advice. Look at verse 9. That when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. You see, Paul was experienced on the seas, and of course, really, there's only one sea in which he ever traveled. That was the Mediterranean Sea. That's the sea that's right here in this chapter, the Mediterranean Sea. He had often been on it. He knew its waters, and he was experienced. No, he was not a mariner. He had picked up knowledge, and he warns them. He advises them not to go where they actually wanted to go. In verse number 10, there's the word perceive. He says, I perceive. 
And as I focus on that word, and I emphasize it to you, there was a divine, a supernatural intimation made to this man, Paul, that the ship should not sail. In the mind of God, he had it. The Lord had revealed to this man, made it clear to this man, that they were not to sail, and he warned them, and he advised them, but we find, of course, they disregarded it because of their, fa- their favorable circumstances. And you say, isn't that so applicable? Sinners plunging on in life, careless about the Word of God, careless about the things of God, careless about the refuge, the only refuge that there really is, the fair havens of safety in Christ, to put it that way, to, to take this topical view and to see in that particular manner the fair havens that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where sinners ought to be. That's where they need to be. That's where they must. And the only place they will find shelter in the fair havens of Christ. You know, the Bible calls them a refuge. It calls them a rock. It calls them a tower. It calls them a fortress. It actually calls them a harbor. In the little book of Zephaniah, the Lord is a harbor for those who are His. If you take Isaiah's words in Isaiah 32 and verse 2, here's here's what Isaiah said. It's so appropriate, so relevant here to our message tonight. It says there, A man shall be as an hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. And the man there is Christ. And Isaiah 32, the God-man who by his person and through his work saves sinners. Men and women, young people tonight, if you are going to be safe, if you're not going to make spiritual shipwreck, then obey the Word of God and flee to Christ. Do what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 6, a marvelous passage where he's got these this imagery in his mind there also about getting into a place of shelter. Hebrews chapter 6 and the verses 19 and 20, and here's what the apostle says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. There is metaphor used by the apostle Paul. He talks about an anchor, an anchor for the soul. And that anchor is gone within the veil. That anchor is Jesus Christ. He's the forerunner. He is within heaven. And if you are going to be in heaven with him, you've got to get attached to Christ. You've got to put your life in his hands and he will draw you safely home to the fair havens of glory. And if you do not enter in through Jesus Christ, then you will surely come to shipwreck, to grief, to endless despair. They went against Paul's advice. Are you going against the advice of a father, a mother, whoever? Oh yes, people do it all the while. They go against the advice that they're given. There's a brother in this congregation right now, and of course I'll not name his name, but he told me a story one time. It was a heartbreaking story of a young man with whom he grew up 
the closest of friends. And in their unconverted days, they ran around together. And then this man, this brother among us was saved. But before that point came, one night they were in a gospel meeting, and they both came out. And the other man, the young man as he was then, said to this dear brother, I want you to know tonight that this is not for me. I'm going my way. And if you want to be saved, that's entirely up to you, but it's not for me. And that's what happened. And not very many years later on, when he was still a relatively young man, that fellow who said that to my dear brother in Christ who sits here tonight became very ill. And he left this world going out into eternity, cursing God as he died. He made shipwreck. He sat in the same gospel meetings. He was under the same influences of godly, prayerful people. But he said, no. And that's how he died. And ah, my friend, I want you to think about that. Go against godly advice, and you are imperiling your soul. And you surely will lose that soul. Why did they reject Paul's advice? Because the majority wanted it. Not his advice, they wanted to go the other way. Look at verse number 12. Because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart. The majority wanted to go on the way. The south, wind, the south wind's blowing softly, all's well. And the advice that Paul had given us rejected because the majority were against that advice. And that's the way of the world. The majority is against the truth. The majority is against godly advice. The majority laughs at it. Oh, don't listen to the preacher. Don't listen to the Bible. Don't listen to God. We'll make it. We can go our own way and all will be fine. Ah, oh, my dear friend, let me tell you, the Bible's full of many examples of people who went with the majority and now they're lost forever. The majority will take you the wrong road. Young person, you pay heed to that. They will take you the wrong road. And so the majority were against Paul's advice and they, they were swayed by what appeared to be pleasing to the flesh because again, verse 12, notice this, the haven, that's the fair havens that they left. The haven was not commodious to winter in. From their perspective and their thinking and their suppositions, who wants to stay there? You know, it's a far better place up ahead, Phoenix or Phoenix, as it could be read. It's nicer. It's a large city port. It will be very commodious. It will afford all the entertainment we want. And we can stay there all winter and we'll have the greatest time. That's the way they were thinking. And the gospel is despised 
And advice is refused because the world tells people it's not commodious, it's too restrictive. It demands repentance from sin. It robs of pleasure. And what's meant by pleasure, of course, is earthly, sensual pleasure. The appetites of the flesh being gratified. You see, Christ is not attractive to the ungodly. There's no beauty in the Lord that they would ever desire Him. They don't want the Lord. They want to go their own way. Therefore, they reject the advice. And so, we're finding this as well. Favorable circumstances, the south wind blowing, all's well. They despised the real refuge. But in closing, favorable circumstances conceal disaster. You see it here. Look at verse 14. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocliton. The south wind gave them a false hope, but little did they know, just a little while later, this ferocious hurricane would suddenly come sweeping down upon them. And so favorable circumstances concealed this. They couldn't see it. There's no evidence of it. Not even a sign of it. The south wind's blowing. Most likely a balmy breeze. They're enjoying themselves. They're out on the deck. It's a lovely day. And before they've gone very far, everything changes. Changes completely. Eurocliden was a cyclonic northeastern wind that blew with the force of a hurricane. And you know, it's still, it's still around. I looked this up. I googled the word, and up it comes. It is a common, ferocious tempest that frequently hits the Mediterranean. And so, what you have here is perfectly in order. It's factual. In Scripture, you see, it says it's a northeasterly or easterly wind. In Scripture, the east wind is associated with ruin. You find that in Genesis. You find that in Jeremiah. I'm not going to go to all the places. I'm simply telling you it's associated with disaster and ruin. And so, here is the Lord showing that all the favorable circumstances that these people, that they clung to, that they wrapped around themselves, concealed what was just about to happen. Sinners, therefore, will come under the blast of God's wrath. There's no doubt about that. Psalm 1-4, the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And I thought about the words in the book of Job, Job 18-18, where you've got these awful words about the ungodly man. It says this, He shall be driven from light into darkness, and chased out of the world. That's the end of the sinner. Driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. And the imagery there is definitely of a wind 
that comes. It's the wind of God's judgment and wrath, and it drives sinners out of the world, out of time into eternity, away from all hope, all opportunity, away from light. At least there's light in the world in the sense that there are Christians, and there's the Bible, and there are opportunities. But when a man leaves the world to go out into darkness, he has left that light behind him forever. And he's chased out of the world into eternal damnation beyond hope. All because his favorable circumstances hid from him the awaiting disaster. Sinner, is it not the case that we have been looking tonight at a passage that graphically describes where you are. You are hoping and you are reasoning that all which you judge to be favorable circumstances is how you guide your life, how you think, how you behave, how you travel through this journey toward eternity. And I pray that tonight God will awaken you and you will realize you're on the wrong path, you're going in the wrong direction, you're facing everlasting ruin. But thank God there is one whom we can call our fair havens. Get there. Trust Him. Seek Him. Flee to Him. Do so now. Let us bow in prayer as we come to the end of our meeting. And may God, by His Spirit, write His word in our hearts. Anyone here who's troubled and anxious about the soul, about eternity, realizing that you're on the wrong road, you're making the wrong decisions, it's all just a big heap of suppositions without any basis for such. And you're prepared and you're ready now to turn and flee to Christ. Then take that step now. As we're certain I will be glad to help you, speak with you, counsel you, even as you seek out that help. And may it be sought out tonight. See us when the meeting is over. We can't save you, obviously. But we can lead you to the one who does save. And our Father in heaven, thou dost know all hearts here. O Lord, in our own little experiences in life, we have seen this so often. Sinners making shipwreck. Sinners coming to a terrible end because of their clinging to something that they supposed was the way to go that concealed the awful end that awaited, caused them to despise the refuge that there was. Lord, save sinners from themselves, from their sin and get them to Christ 
draw them with the cords of love this night. Do the work that only you are able to do. Part is with thy blessing. We ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.